And so we come to Psalm 137. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we thought about Jerusalem, and we sat down and cried. We hung our small harps on the willow trees. Our enemies had brought us here as their prisoners, and now they wanted us to sing and entertain them. They insulted us and shouted, Sing about Zion! Here in a foreign land, how can we sing about the Lord? Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand go limp. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't think about you above all else. Our Lord punished the Edomites because the day Jerusalem fell, they shouted, completely destroy the city, tear down every building. Babylon, you are doomed. I pray the Lord's blessings on anyone who punishes you for what you did to us. May the Lord bless everyone who beats your children against the rocks. Strong words. Have you ever had the experience of being in a worship service and you are surrounded by people rejoicing over how brilliant God is and how good he's been to them and you just can't join in? It's a very isolating experience. You just feel... Even worse, because everyone around you is, is expressing how wonderful God is and it just pushes you down. If you've ever felt that way, you can perhaps catch just the faintest glimpse of how the author of Psalm 137 felt. God's people in exile in a foreign land, far away from home, cut off from God. And one of the ways in which their captors tormented them was to demand that they sing one of the songs of Zion. Joyful song of praise to God. Let's hear you say how wonderful your God is. And of course they couldn't. They couldn't. Far from home, far from God. Their heart wasn't in it. To remember Zion, to remember the home city Jerusalem, was to remember its utter destruction and the devastating loss of life that accompanied that. How could they play musical instruments and sing songs of praise to God. All they could do was sit and weep. And their grief was so profound because they loved Jerusalem so much. If they didn't care about the city, they wouldn't have bothered that it had been destroyed. But it's because they loved Jerusalem so much that they vowed never to forget what had taken place. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember Jerusalem, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. But precisely because Jerusalem was no more, their highest joy had turned into the depths of desolation. And so we find this outpouring of grief and rage in this psalm of lament. And the ending of the psalm is, is horrific. It's a travesty of a benediction. How can you bless those who seize infants and dash out their brains on the rocks? What do we make of such awful words? 
And if the Bible is the word of God, what on earth are they doing there? Does that mean that somehow God approves of such sentiments or endorses them? No, not at all. What we do find in the Psalms is a searingly honest record of people pouring out their hearts to God, expressing exactly what they think and feel. And sometimes what floods out is praise and worship, but other times it's raw pain and anger. And it's raw pain and anger that we find in Psalm 137. And why are we looking at this psalm at all, and why are we looking at it as part of a series on the subject of healing? It's simply because this expression of outrage needs to be heard. Listen carefully. Where people have been through that experience where they've got, undergone that trauma, where that, that anger and rage and pain is in their hearts, that needs to be heard. And it needs to be heard in a safe place. These words may well be uttered by parents who had seen their tiny children callously flung to their deaths, and their sense of helpless anger and grief and guilt that having been unable to save their own children, finds expression in this longing for justice to be done, for some kind of retribution for the perpetrators of this atrocity to suffer what they had put others through. To feel what they feel. So that the blood of their children does not go unavenged. And you can understand why they feel that way. And you might turn around to me and say, well, I thought the Bible was supposed to be about forgiveness. And of course it is. I would agree with you 100% on that. But how do you respond to an atrocity? Something that defies comprehension. Do you reciprocate like for like? Do you inflict on those the atrocity that they themselves have inflicted on others? Do you go down that road? Or do you go to the opposite extreme and do you forgive the perpetrator? Do you relinquish your desire for retribution and justice? Both alternatives actually, you might say, are unthinkable. But the nature of an atrocity is such that there is, there is no response which nullifies its effect. And, and the alternatives of an eye for an eye or, or complete forgiveness are polar opposites in, in terms of possible responses and there is a whole sliding scale of what might happen in between. But the reality is, isn't it, that unless the perpetrator suffers in the same way that they have made their victim suffer, there will always be a discrepancy between what they have done and whatever punishment comes their way. And the only way to deal with that gap is through forgiveness. But forgiveness is not in the mind of the writer of Psalm 137. All we hear is a howl of anger and despair, which needs to be heard. The psalm raises an important question. What do we do when we are consumed with anger. How do we get it out of our system? 
Medical research shows that actually one of the best ways of dealing with traumatic experiences is to verbalise what has happened and your reaction to it. And it's even suggested that writing it all down can be more effective than talking about it. Perhaps because if you write it all down, you're, you're not inhibited about what the person you're talking to will make of what you say. You can just say exactly what you think and feel if you're writing it down. And that's why we have this psalm. That's why it's in the scriptures. Because people are just writing down exactly what they feel. Exactly what they want. Exactly what their anger drives them to. And that's why we're including this psalm in a series on healing, because emotions like this need to be expressed. And they need to be heard. That's why this psalm is in our Bibles. Because if we don't express that anger, if we just internalise it and bury it, rather than being honest about how we really feel, then that destructiveness turns in upon ourselves and cripples us. Burying emotions takes a toll on our physical health. From headaches and high blood pressure, through to heart disease and even cancer, all of these things have been linked to suppressed anger. It makes us ill. It destroys us from the inside out. It can make us hate ourselves. It can make us feel worthless or depressed. If we disown our own anger, we can project it onto other people so that we become paranoid, thinking everyone around us is angry and has got it in for us. We pull down the shutters and we become emotionally withdrawn. We cut ourselves off, except when someone provokes us. And then all that pent-up rage and anger floods out in destructive behaviour in ways that destroys relationships, in ways that is totally disproportionate to whatever it is the poor person who's antagonised us has said or done. Anger is poisonous. And you know, it's possible that we as Christians are particularly susceptible to suppressing negative emotions because we we know we ought to do the loving thing. We know we ought to be forgiving and turn the other cheek and actually, you know, not be like this. We feel uncomfortable with our anger. But actually that sometimes means that we never get round to dealing with the emotional impact of someone hurting us or damaging us. When someone does something wrong, there can be a lot to forgive. There is the deed itself. And the first step in in forgiveness is actually saying, that was wrong. That should never have happened. That was out of order. Then there there might be our perception of whatever it was that motivated the person to do what they did. And that, that may be a mitigating factor. I can see perhaps why they did this. I can understand. Or maybe not. Actually, we may see no excuse, no reason why they did what they did, apart from cruelty. Then there are the long-term consequences of what's been done. 
the damage to you and to other people, others who've been hurt. There may be financial implications. Things may never be the same again. Life may never return to normal. All of that needs to be weighed and counted when it comes to forgiving. And then there are are the emotions that you feel and the impact that these have on your health. Who would not feel anger if they'd witnessed children being killed? It would be wrong not to feel that outrage. The emotional damage is part of the, the harm that's caused. All of this needs to be taken into consideration when it comes to forgiving. Otherwise, we make forgiveness superficial. If you decide you are going to seek to forgive someone, you need to know and be aware of the impact of the, what they've done has had upon your life and the lives of those around you. And it can be a lengthy and difficult process. And at times it may feel impossible. But it's one which entails unpacking and unpicking all those different layers of hurt and injustice and wrongness with a view ultimately to letting them go. Releasing the emotions, releasing the memories, releasing the people responsible and so finding a degree of freedom and of peace. And part of that process entails being honest about how you really feel. And that's why God is a good person, someone to whom you can pour out your heart, your anger and your grief, because you can't shock God. You can't hide anything from him. There's no point in pretending. And that may may be why in this psalm we see the unthinkable expressed in words. Pronouncing God's blessing on anyone who dashes out the brains of the infant children of the daughter of Babylon. Because that's how they felt. And what happened to the person who wrote this psalm after they wrote these words? Did they pick up a cudgel and vent their rage on someone else's child? Did they nurse and stoke up all this anger and hatred in their heart and take it with them to the grave? Did they find a measure of relief or healing or forgiveness? We don't know. But what we can say with a small degree of confidence is that in verbalising what they felt in this kind of way, that reduces the likelihood of them murdering someone else's child to exact their revenge, less likely that they will carry this bitterness with them, this anger and hatred, till their dying day. Because putting what they felt into words, awful as it is to see those words written down or to hear them spoken, is a vital step towards them receiving some kind of healing for the trauma that they've been through and the impact it's had on them. I remember 
a very mild-mannered and gracious Christian, telling me that he'd been to receive counselling. I think it was because of some inner conflict he held inside. And he talked about what he'd been through in that counselling, the, 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 the language that he used, which was, which was unthinkable for him, the, the emotions that he expressed, uh, the, the, the complete sense in which he, he was consumed by these emotions that he needed just to get out of his system. He was appalled by the stuff that came out. But at the end of it all, he was, I think, more whole as a person. And the mild-mannered person that you'd always seen on the outside wasn't concealing all this rubbish on the inside anymore. It's who he was all the way down, all the way through. He was more at peace with himself for letting it out and expressing it. What's it mean for us to be a healing church? An important way in which we can do this is to listen. To listen to people's stories, to listen to their emotions, to listen to what they really think and feel, to be genuine maybe to express their own psalm of lament. The Zambian gospel singer Nathan Nairenda expresses what's been described as a cry of despair, the soul's horror wail of pain experienced by many Africans today. He says, or he sings, I'm not going to sing it. My God, hear my cry for help. Suffering, hunger and famine fill our nation's landscape. Agony and sorrow, poverty and material disgrace pour like the latter rain. Thoughts of suffering are written on the faces of humans and animals alike. We work like slaves and donkeys from dawn till dusk. Is it because of our black skin or our inherently low intellectual capacity? I've struggled, Father. Explain this to me. The voice of lament needs to be expressed, needs to be heard. The anger, the grief, the pain, the despair. And just to verbalise and express these things is good. Writing them down is very good. But I think there's something significant in expressing all this to God. Because when we pour out our hearts to God, we, we do so to the God whose Son bore our griefs and carried our sorrows on the cross. And who died with the weight of the world's suffering and pain and injustice and anger and hatred and pointlessness on his shoulders. And prayed for forgiveness as he did so. And arose again to send his spirit of love and hope and healing and life into the hearts of his followers. It's one of the factors that makes Jesus the great healer. No one is beyond his redemption. No one beyond his healing power. 
And if we, for our part, can listen to people's stories, and if we can point them to Jesus, the one who died for them, to take their grief and anger and sorrow and the sin that's been committed against them, then perhaps we can play our very small part in bringing God's healing into the lives of devastated people. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the honesty of this psalmist. Thank you that he or she did not draw back from expressing what they really felt. And thank you that we can always do that to you. You are the God who understands You are the God of compassion. You are the God who feels our pain. You are the God who brings us your healing and forgiveness. Thank you. Amen.